Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cully. And here we are, Simon, discussing the blog and other content, what's been going on in our lives for September 2023. There's lots to talk about. Not least, we are in the midst of conference season. You have been travelling. You've been to the glamorous city of Glasgow and then had to struggle through the depths of Barcelona. A bit of a dual thing, a bit of Arkem, a bit of Usum. Been having a good time? Uh, Yeah, well, it's been a very busy time, but it's absolutely absolutely fantastic to meet up with people again. I think this is the first time that I've really felt that we're getting back into all the fantastic things that happen at conferences um, and just meeting people and getting new ideas and developing stuff. I'll give you one example. We were just having coffee and there was a very senior researcher that we were talking to. And one of our, one of my colleagues in Manchester was just walking past and I said, oh, hi, come and say hello to, it was Tim Coates, who's an amazing human. She said, oh, I'm pleased to meet you and all that kind of stuff. Are you the guy who does that study about noise in the emergency departments? I said, yes. And just watch them wander off into this fantastic conversation about bringing two studies together, about sharing knowledge, about getting ideas going. And you just think that's happening all over this room. It's happening all over these days. You just don't get that at a virtual conference. It's fantastic. Same in Barcelona at USEM great conference as per usual but the biggest and most exciting thing is meeting people again sharing ideas and doing that innovation type thing which i struggle to do online but face to face absolutely superb watching from a distance it it did seem there was a lot going on in glasgow with people meeting up there's a real research well i can i say renaissance going on in emergency medicine there's a lot happening isn't there it's no longer the sort of poorer brother of the cpd conference where a few academics sit around and chew over a couple of things this is a big deal now uh, yeah speaking as one of those few academics who used to chew over a couple of things you're absolutely right i look at where i was some years ago and where the quality and the quantity of what we're getting out of emergency medicine research now it, you know it, it's it's completely different era and i think people like Jason Smith, who um, has been dealing with the academic content for the conferences and been really striving to make sure that he's got a very, very strong new research feel and developing new researchers has been fantastic. I think we've got a lot of thanks to him and the other organising committees and the whole of the research committee for doing that and alongside also doing the CPD stuff. But yeah, if you are aspiring to be an academic in emergency medicine, There is now a really good career path. And also there's a lot of people out there to help. There's a lot of people who you can look up to who were very happy to share their knowledge and support. And yeah, get into it. It's great. It's good fun. Learn things, make new worlds. So a bit of lovely conference time. And perhaps we should dig straight into the blog post because one of the first blog posts in September was you talking about the top 10 papers at a conference in Jeddah. But I'm guessing that sadly you didn't make it all the way to Saudi Arabia this time. I did not. I have been to Jeddah in the past and I've been to the uh, Saudi Arabian Society of Emergency Medicine Conference. We've talked about it on the blog before and fantastic group of people. Really, absolutely fascinating place to go. And it blew away a lot of my preconceptions about uh, Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabian emergency medicine in a really positive way. Um, And you can read, I've put the links on the blog about going back to the the previous one where I talk about that. But this was virtual. I couldn't get there between Barcelona and Glasgow. And I was talking, yeah, about top 10 papers have been knocking around this year, some of which we've covered on the blog already, but I don't mind going through them and just reiterating the, the headlines, if you wish. Well, I tell you what, let's do a quick hit. It's what we all like these days, isn't it? Instagram reels. We like a a 10 second summary. We're not really in it for Radio 3. We're in it for the uh, classic FM Scala, just to somehow bring classical music into this. But let's do a quick thing. Top 10 trials. I'm going to give you the title of the trial and you're going to tell me the highlights and let's get some evidence-based medicine in as quick as we can. Now, as Simon says, a lot of these that we've already covered either in the podcast and the blog. So you'll be able to go back and those of you who like a bit more detail, the Radio 3 listeners, 
you can find it. Please don't worry that this is all we've covered on the blog. There's more underneath. And as ever, let's just say it again. Please do read the trials for yourself. Don't believe what a pair of crusty old men say on a podcast. You've got to go and have a look for yourself. So, Simon, let's start. Paper one, the patch trial. Does TXA work in trauma? Right, patch trial, randomized control trial of TXA in major trauma patients in um, Australia, New Zealand and Germany. Great paper. What they showed is um, according to their outcome measure, there was no difference at six months in positive neurological functional outcomes at six months. But there was an increase in survivability. So if you believe that TXA works okay about controlling bleeding, then more people survive if you give TXA in about the same number of we've seen in all the other studies of TXA. So it is controversial, as TX always is. But in my opinion, if you want your patients to survive more often, give them TXA and then really focus on giving them fantastic rehabilitation afterwards. And that's from the New England Journal of Medicine from June this year. A top quality journal doing emergency medicine and trauma research. We love it. Paper two, should we use video laryngoscopy routinely? We have covered this on the podcast. We've chatted about it. What was the answer from this paper? Uh, really interesting. So this, again, it's a randomized control trial looking at video laryngoscopy versus direct. So what did they find? If you really know what you're doing, then there's not a lot of difference between DL and VL. So if you're an experienced intubator, if you've done more than 100 intubations, then it probably doesn't make a massive difference. VL might be slightly better. If you're learning or if you're a novice, it makes a big difference. And so what this paper tells me is that for most of us who don't do a huge number of intubations, video laryngoscopy is probably the way forward. And particularly if we're trying to develop our trainees coming forward and learning the intubation skills, which is a big thing for me as Dean, of course, absolutely use VLs, use it as a teaching aid, Great podcast on this from Scott Weingart in the US if you want to go over there and listen to him talk about this and explain all the rationale for this. This reduces the number of intubations that you need to get good, probably from about 100 to about 50. Kind of made up numbers, but probably right. And let's not forget when we're talking about teaching, we're not just talking about colleagues who want to be physicians and consultants in emergency medicine. We're talking about our nursing colleagues who can now understand what a, a larynx looks like and our medical students, we can inspire to see what that living anatomy looks like. So VL, good thing. Paper number three, alternate defibrillation strategies, the DOSE-VF trial. Oh, what a great trial this was in cardiac arrest, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. For those patients who are in refractory VF, i.e. they've had three shocks, they're still in VF. What do you do? Do you carry on doing the same thing? Do you move the pad positions from antralateral to AP? Or do you put two defibrillators on and go bang, bang, one second apart, two defibrillators? The big answer is actually changing the pad position is a really good thing, probably. But changing to a dual seek a dual defibrillator, dual sequence approach, one second apart, significantly increases the survival rate to hospital discharge of these patients. So now in your practice, if you're given three shocks, you should probably be changing paddle position or putting two defibs on. The major guidelines haven't caught up yet, so it's not in the standard guidelines. Um, so you have to get local permissions and all that kind of stuff. But I tell you now, I am doing this. And I know a lot of other people who are as well. But follow your local guidelines. Don't get sacked on what I say. And just thinking about the survival there, the people with the dual sequence, their survival was 30.4%. And survival with a normal anterolateral position was 13.3%. So those of you who like a number needed to treat or number needed to survive, that's a pretty healthy number that uh, you're going to get out of there. We're not going to have to do it to too many people to get an extra survivor. So good stuff. Dual sequence defibrillation would be looked at a bit funny in your recess room. Please get people on board. Don't just say, well, Simon said it was a good thing. And I read a paper. It's about involving hearts and minds, particularly hearts. Paper number three, new triage methods in major incidents. Now, Simon, 
you've had some experience in major instance. Whenever I chat to my boys and they say, so daddy, have you ever seen this? I go, yeah. Have you ever seen this, daddy? And they think of more and more wild stuff about stuff you might see in an emergency department. And at the end of it, I kind of say, the thing I've never seen, boys, is a major incident. So it's the one thing in my career that I can properly say I have never lived and seen. I've trained in, but here we are. I know that Manchester, you have had, sadly, an experience in major incidents. And we've listened to the experience from France. You can go back on the podcast and listen to a bit about what's happened with active shooters in there. But this is new triage methods in major incidents. Simon, you're a MIMS instructor. You've been involved for years. What do you think of this? In the last couple of weeks, I was actually the medical advisor for the big bus crash that we had in the north of England. So I was actually on duty that day and responded to that as one of the major incident doctors in the northwest for the merit team. So, yeah, it's very pertinent in my mind at the moment. And triage has always been a tricky one. I've done quite a lot of research on this myself. And one of the really important things that we get, we got out of research I was doing with the South African team, you know, people like Lee Wallace, was that when you're doing triage in a major incident, you're not trying to identify the people who are going to die because that's kind of easy, but not really very helpful. What you want to do is identify the patients who are going to live if you do something. So it's different to a lot of other triage. And what they've done now is they've developed what's called a 10-second triage as a method to rapidly discriminate between people who are okay to be left for a little bit of time, we'll have a look at them later, or those group of patients who might have a serious injury for which we can do something about. So something like a penetrating torso injury is a time-critical injury because it could do something about it and they're still alive. It's a bit of a consensus document. It is based on some database research, which has been done using TARN and military databases, but this is a bit of a game-changer. It's 10 seconds, you can triage effectively, and it can be taught to non-medical providers because it doesn't require you to do things like complicated observations like blood pressure and other things like that. So yeah, I think this is going to be a game changer. We should all know about it and probably be using it. And when my boys say to me, Daddy, have you ever done these things? I always think to myself, I've got to keep up to date with the stuff that I've either not done or not done for a long time. And it's about practice, isn't it? And great to see Jamie Vasalo as the lead author on this sort of work, along with Jason Smith. Jamie was a doctor with us in Southampton, now having done a PhD, I think, doing great things and really reinforces that idea that research is alive and active in emergency medicine. Paper five, Simon, we covered this on the blog, so you can spend a little bit more than your allocated few seconds on how old is your emergency physician, age and clinical outcomes. Maybe you should explain this first before we declare our conflict of interest. (laughs) Yeah, so the conflict of interest is we're getting um, older, aren't we? This is um, a new paper, but it's based on a concept which has been published in a lot of other specialties. And basically what they do is they take a cohort of patients and they look at how old the clinician was who saw you, and then they look at your outcomes at the end of it. And is there a relationship between the age of your clinician and your outcomes. And you think, well, actually, as you get more and more experienced, maybe your patients are more better off, you know, you're more likely to survive. Well, actually, not in all specialties. So in geriatrics in the past, we talked about the fact that the mortality of your patients rises as your doctor's age rise. But also now we know that it rises in emergency physicians as well. So massive database study in the US, where they looked at the age of the physician, and the chances of being alive seven days later. And if you were over 60 years old, Um, It was higher mortality than if you were 50 to 59, 40, 49, or 40. This is in patients who are aged 65 to 89. So they've chosen that older age group because you you have a higher event rate because you shouldn't really be dying if you see an emergency physician at the age of 20. The real difference is they're statistically important. It's consistent with other studies. And it really raises questions about why that should be. I personally have a feeling that it's about keeping up to date. It's keeping your CPD going. There are other explanations and we talk about those on the blog. But I think there is something about keeping yourselves up to date 
being as good as you possibly can be. For whatever people say about exams, you know, like the FR Chem and stuff, the FR Chem is a moment in time where you should be at the absolute top of your game in terms of knowledge and skills, particularly knowledge. And after that period of time, if you don't keep your CPD up, I do worry about people. But who knows? We don't see these effects in other specialties. And also the other great studies, sorry, go on about this. Other great studies, look at the ones that look at the um, gender of your um, physician. I think in surgical specialties, um, certainly there are now papers that show that you have better outcomes if you're treated by a woman. This reminds me of my legendary colleague, John Hayworth, who I know you've probably seen recently in Barcelona and in Glasgow, talking about the trimesters of your career as an emergency physician, an emergency consultant. And uh, he describes the fourth trimester, which is that point where you get a bit older and it's really, what are you going to do with your career then? It's relatively well mapped out at the beginning, isn't it? You, you become a consultant. You're keen, enthusiastic, ambitious. You want to change the world. Second trimester, well, you've got a bit of experience. So you sort of graduate into some sort of management role, perhaps doing something across a hospital. Third trimester, you're kind of the sage person in the corner who's offering advice. And then, then there's the fourth trimester. And you don't want to be put out to pasture. You want to still have a role. And how do you do it? And uh, you, you and I are a bit older. It's hard to tell from our voices, perhaps, but we are. And I do admit the one thing I find hard now is just getting tired. I'm I'm not yet 50. I'm 50 soon. Let's be honest. But yeah, I, you know, eight hour shifts, should they be for everybody? When you do your shift, should you have to function at the same level throughout? Uh, can we be sympathetic to people as they get older? And I've listened to another colleague, Diana Holbert, talk very eloquently about menopausal women, female colleagues, and how actually being menopausal is also not that straightforward if you're an emergency physician. It's not just our younger colleagues having babies and being woken in the middle of the night. You have this funny stuff affecting them. So maybe we do need to think a bit more novelly about how we look after ourselves and, and individualise career paths, particularly as we, as we get older in age. Yeah, we need to keep people in the in the service. I've got some fantastic colleagues of a similar age. I don't want them to disappear off. I want to keep them in the department, keep them on their wisdom, support, enthusiasm, of which many still have, despite all the stuff that's going on at the moment. But so yeah, really interesting, real effects. Let's have a think about what it actually means. Correlation is not causation. And that tricky thing as well is we've got to persuade our management that being an older clinician, you have other things to offer. It's not just about getting down the weight in majors or cracking through patients in minors or whatever we might be viewed as. Uh, there are other things we can offer. And here's my plug. If you ever want to get involved in education, undergraduate education is a prime time spot for emergency physicians who are keen on passing on their wisdom. We have a broad, broad range of knowledge that we can really use to pass on to our junior medical student colleagues, inspire them into our specialty. But uh, yeah, there's often you sit there and they'll say, oh, uh, I need to learn about epistaxis for ENT. And you go, oh, OK, I know a bit about that. And then they'll need to know about something else for another. Subject. Oh, I know a bit about that, too. So please uh, let me request if you're looking for somewhere, approach your undergraduate deans and offer your services. Paper six, Simon, fentanyl for rapid sequence induction. The fact study. Did I say that? Yeah. Right? He did, yeah. It's um, from Australia. It's from our friends in Sydney Hens, amongst others. Um, great study looking at the effect of fentanyl on hemodynamics in RSI. Bottom line is fentanyl, I was always taught, was incredibly cardiovascularly stable. It's not. Um, it's more likely to cause a drop in blood pressure. Um, but also, if you're worried about a um, patient becoming hypertensive, it blunts the effect of laryngoscopy and intubation on your blood pressure. So 
bit of a tricky one there. It does exactly kind of what we now think it does. How do you go and take away from this? So the takeaway from this is if you're really worried about a patient having a blood pressure spike, so your head injury is already a bit hypertensive and you really don't want them to go up high, probably worth giving them some fentanyl. And in those patients in whom you are really worried about them being hypovolemic and you don't want them to drop their blood pressure and it all looks a bit dodgy, then modify your dose or possibly omit it. And that's very much my practice now within uh, pre-hospital care and emergency medicine as well. So nice paper, um, worth a look, tells us kind of what we thought we thought we knew, but you know, it's good, good, always good to have data. Data is good. And of course, when we're intubating patients, particularly pre-hospital, we're not just thinking about how we get them safely intubated and off to sleep. It's managing the pain from the injuries that may well be associated with their, their actual injury basis. And so I, I always have to try and balance up. Am I giving fentanyl to try and blunt the effect of the laryngoscopy or the intubation? Or have they got two fractured femurs and that really hurts? And it is a tricky balance, isn't it? But we mustn't forget pain relief is another function of fentanyl in the intubating patients. Paper seven, we're almost there for your top 10. What a marathon this is. Paper seven, thrombectomy alone or thrombectomy after alter plays in stroke patients. Uh, are you doing this in Manchester, thrombectomy? Uh, yeah, um, but not necessarily all the time. Lots of controversy about thrombolysis in stroke. But thrombectomy kind of appeals to me because you can do something, there's a blockage, make the blockage go away or the mechanical types of means. And so that's become more and more popular. Reviewed a couple of papers on the blog, actually. RCT showing that. The question is, though, if you're going to go for thrombectomy and you're waiting to have your thrombectomy, should you have thrombolysis whilst you're waiting to have it? Um, and that was not really very well defined. And um, basically, this paper says yes. So if you're going to go to thrombectomy, it's probably worth, unless it's going to be instantaneous, um, get on and do some thrombolysis first, because that sort of acts, I suppose it's a bit like if you're having an MI, isn't it? We give aspirin and, and something like clopidogrel, ticagrelor, before they go for their um, PCI. So it's that kind of thinking. But yeah, it's a nice study. Published in the Lancet, good numbers, wise, go for it. If you're in that kind of centre, yeah. Speak to neurologist. It would be lovely if uh, thrombectomy became as widely available as PCI in heart attacks, wouldn't it? And also, it mean that the generation of emergency physicians we've grown up with and been part of who've moaned about thrombolysis for the last 20 years could just shut up because it wouldn't be used anymore. Like when we used to give streptokinase for heart attacks, remember that? But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be? And it does make sense, doesn't it? Let's not thin all of your blood. Let's just take the clotty bit out. I still don't quite understand why we don't do that for PEs, but I'm sure there's a good reason why we still have to think about thrombolizing patients with PE, which somebody can obviously write on Twitter or any other social media platform to educate me about. Paper eight Do we miss giving TXA to our female patients? I presume by this, you don't mean, do we miss it as in, oh, I'm really sad we don't do it anymore. I guess what you mean is, <laughs> are we not giving it to our female patients? Yeah, and the, the, the quick answer is um, we don't give it as often. UK-based, um, looking at CRASH 2 and CRASH 3, showed that there was no difference in the ability of TXA to save lives in uh, between men and women. So we should be giving it. And then when you actually look whether we do give it, we don't. And this is in keeping with many other trials that show that we don't treat women the same as men. We don't give them as much pain relief. We don't send them to PCI as often as we should. We don't give them thrombolysis as often as we should. We're just not as good at treating women as we are with men. So here's another example. Have a think about it. Any ideas why? I mean, are we just dipping our toes into a minefield? So have a look at the pay. Have a look at the big review online for that. But one of the main reasons I think could be that we see a different pattern of trauma in the databases. So there are possibly more older, because women live longer than men. So you might have more fragility type, major trauma type patients um, where the effect is seen. And that's certainly true. If you really dig down into data, there is some effect that, but even if you take the ages down to the 20 to 30 year olds, the difference between male and female prescribing isn't as big, but it is still there. So I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. And we're going to come back to this when we talk about Stefan's blog post in a bit about bias and us not having an awareness of, of our own biases. And we'll come on to that in a minute. A couple more papers to go. A paradigm shift. Oh, we love a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift in extrication techniques. Oh, I suppose the paradigm before was that you've had an accident and now if you move more than a millimetre, so you've had an accident which could have caused a spinal injury, and then if you get moved more than a millimetre by your rescuers, you're going to pith your cord and then become paralysed. That was the paradigm. That you should have not just low amounts of spinal movement when you're moving around after an accident, but, you know, minuscule. The absence of spinal movement was the, was the aim. Problem with that is that people who... Are at risk. So you've had your car accident, you're entrapped or whatever. The chance of you having an unstable spinal injury, which has not already declared itself, is really small. But also, you're quite likely to have other injuries as well because you've just been in a big car accident. And so if we spend ages trying to get you out of the vehicle because there's a small risk of you having a potentially unstable injury which might possibly cause a problem, then you might well die of your ruptured spleen whilst we're taking ages to chop the roof off take the doors off, move things around. And so the shift is what's most important for this patient. Lots of things in here, but big things like if the patient can safely extricate for themselves with a bit of support, just let them self-extricate. If the patient needs to get out of the vehicle because they've got concomitant injuries, just get them out of the vehicle. If they are having a prolonged extrication, if they are genuinely mechanically trapped, have somebody speak to the patient because it's bloody terrifying. You know, there's some really good common sense advice in here. Maybe it's a bit of a shame that it's taken this long for it to appear as a consensus statement. But if you're involved in pre-hospital care or you're involved in receiving patients and you've got questions about what happened at scene, have a read of this. It's a really good document. It's a really good read. Great work. I remember the time doing ATLS at the ATLS walk. Do you remember that one? You had to walk along <laughs> yeah. with your arms held into your side with your hands out at 90 degrees already. And the first thing was you had to immobilize somebody's head. And this is the thing, isn't it? We talk about the passing on of knowledge. We do have to battle against 20 years of dogma to try and change these things. And hopefully that's where we have a bit of an effect. And we can do our best. Yeah. Do you remember? The, did you ever do PHTLS? the pre-hospital trauma life support. So that was even crazier. So that, well, it's not crazy. I mean, I'm going to say this is what we thought at the time, but that would be like, you just put one, the person would be in the car. You get somebody to go to the bonnet, put both hands on the bonnet and shout at the patient saying, look at me, look at me, do not move. Look at me, do not move. And then somebody else would sneak in the back and grab them by the head. And we're laughing about it now, but that's what we believed. And there's something at the moment which we are doing, which is just, it's going to be in 10 years time, we'll look back at it in the same way. And it's just both ridiculous. And it's also fantastic that we see science move on in this way. It's really good fun. And yeah, great paper. Read it, read it. It's it's, it's a game changer. For the older listeners, it does remind me of Dirty Den dancing Angie around the kitchen on Christmas Day, trying to persuade her to not go to sleep because she'd taken an overdose, shouting, stick with me, Angie, stick with me. Uh, We still sometimes see that every now and again, a relative who comes in and implores their relative in recess to just stay with us, stay with us. And you sort of, yeah, we're doing everything we can. Last one, paper 10, ECMO for refractory out of hospital cardiac arrest. We really have covered this on the blog and we have talked about it on the podcast. We really desperately, we like exciting stuff, don't we? We're so desperate to have something new in emergency medicine that we grasp onto it. And we really want to have some new things that we can do in these hopeless situations. Where is ECMO? Give us a reminder. Okay, and I can give you my opinion. Read the paper. And this paper didn't show a massive difference. But if you look at it in its round, there are certainly a group of patients who benefit from ECMO um, from out of hospital cardiac arrest. But you can only do it if you've got a really mature system. And there's no point in putting lots of um, sort of fancy sprinkles on top of your cake if your cake is crap. In other words, you've got to put it into a system which is already working really well with fantastic BLS, with fantastic bystander CPR, with fantastic early defibrillation, with good early ALS. And then if you can do all of those things, 
think about doing this. And it probably works then. But it's not a panacea for not having great systems and getting the basics right. That is absolutely the same as all emergency medicine, isn't it? Until you can take a good set of observations, stop worrying about doing all the fancy stuff. Do the simple things well. Sweep the floors, as Coimbra, he once said. You've got to make the basics your be-all and end-all and do them well. However excited we get by all this other stuff. Wow, Simon, top 10 paper. There's a lot there. Please, as I say, have a look at both the blog post where Simon summarizes it all, but there are also links to all of our blog posts where we've gone into those in more depth. And you can also find stuff on the podcast where we've talked in more depth about each of those papers. But isn't it great that there's that's just a year that, and that's not everything, is it? There's so much more going on. And I love the fact that we've got stuff to talk about in that way. I mentioned before talking about inclusive leadership and Stefan's done a really interesting post from his perspective about equality and global health. Uh, what he's titled, What I've Learned from Being a Recovering Racist. Now, this is a, a post that you kind of need to read and we can't do it justice talking about it here. But there are probably one or two things to mention, I think, Simon, about the way we can address our own biases and how we can address how we perhaps see the world and think a bit differently. Did this make you think in a different way yeah there's a few things in here that are worth picking out and and if you were lucky enough to listen to stefan he, when he talks about this it's really powerful stuff um but basically he grew up in south africa and when he was growing up as a kid he didn't necessarily realize what was going on around him he was during the apartheid era and then his story about how he realized what was going on around him and the the you know the absurdity and the unpleasantness of all of that kind of stuff going on and how he became aware of it, and then how it changed his approach to the rest of the world has been really interesting and quite humbling. And it teaches me that it doesn't matter where you come back, come from. I mean, he came from South Africa, but I come from you know my part of the world. We're still living with those biases and pre-existing ideas, and that colours how we see the world. And other people have different views of the world. You know, however woke and left-wing and right-on we think we might be, we're probably not. We've still got our own biases. Second thing I pulled out of it is just he talks about the inequalities in terms of healthcare and emergency care. You know, we are in a lot of stress and a lot of distress at the moment with our emergency care systems in the UK. But if you compare what we've got to what a lot of the rest of the world has got, we are amazing and we're in a very lucky position. And as part of that, we maybe need to support some of our colleagues around the world in terms of their access to the things we're talking about today in, you know, their access to research, their access to teaching, their access to communication, to development and the, the paywalls and the problems that they have from financial and access points are really important. And he talks in there about things that we can do to support people to come to conferences, support their education, support their development. It's, it's powerful stuff. I would, I'd recommend a read. It's, it's always good to listen to Stefan. I, I just love the way he makes me stop and think and challenges my presumptions so many times and always for a good thing. So that's worth a read, worth a think. And, and as ever, reflection is, is a powerful tool, isn't it? Getting back and just thinking about way, what, what you think, really. We do have a few other posts there, Simon, but I think... The people who are at the RCAM annual scientific conference probably don't want us to go all over it. And I'm sure some of our listeners were there. And the posts that Chris has done are very comprehensive and we can't do them justice. And I would love to point you in the direction of the RCAM Learning Podcast. As much as we want you to listen to St. Emlyn's, there's so much out there. There's so many resources and they're doing great work with both all of the content they produce for RCAM Learning and the podcast, where there's some interviews on, on that most recent edition, worth a listen from the horse's mouth. It's great when you can get podcasters with a microphone in front of speakers to try and get them to explain in that different environment what they've been talking about. And Chris, as I say, has done these great posts. It's worth a few minutes of your time to go and digest all of that. And no doubt, as those 
projects come to fruition, we'll be covering them more in St. Emlyn's. There's a lot of evidence-based medicine there, Simon. You, we could argue that it's all stuff we've covered before, but I'm all for spaced repetition. If uh, nothing else, I do that with all my jokes. So you'll have heard the many of them before. It's great to talk to you all on the St. Emlyn's podcast. Thanks again for listening. More to come from us over the coming months. And if you are keen on getting involved and you'd like to write something for us or maybe even record something for us, we're about to enter what we hope will be a very exciting few months and years where we're wanting to expand what we're putting out there, trying to make it more available. But for now, thanks so much for listening. Please like and subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care.